Remember the next few weeks we're talking about passages of Scripture where Jesus said things that are hard to understand, hard to hear. You might even ask, did Jesus really say that? As I thought about things that are hard to hear, it's also true they're hard to say, and so I thought about some tongue twisters that might be fun uh, to try this morning. So I'm going to say them, see if I can do them. Uh, maybe you can try as well, I don't know. But this looks like a hard one. I wish to wish the wish you wish to wish. But if you wish the wish that the witch wishes, I won't wish the wish you wish to wish. It's like a breeze of air coming through here. This one's a little bit fun because it's in a limerick, I guess. There was a fisherman named Fisher who fished for some fish in a fissure. Till a fish with a grin pulled the fisherman in. Now they're fishing the fissure for Fisher. But this is one of my favorite books, uh, Fox and Socks by Dr. Seuss, because that's the whole book. It's a book of tongue twisters. And so I used to read this to my children when they were younger. When it's Read Across America Week at La Crosse Elementary, and we lunch buddies are supposed to read a Dr. Seuss book, this is the one that I read for my class. And this is how the book comes to an end. And this is the best part of the whole book, so I thought I would read it for you today. When a fox is in the bottle where the Tweedle Beetles battle with their paddles in a puddle on a noodle-eating poodle, this is what they call a Tweedle Beetle Noodle Poodle Bottled Paddled Muddled Duddled Fuddled Wuddled Fox and Socks, sir. Yes. I've read it many times. That's the only reason I could do it. But maybe these words, are these words hard to say? I guess maybe it depends, doesn't it? <laughs> Do you remember the first time you said them to uh, your sweetheart or to the person who became your husband or wife? That's kind of awkward, isn't it? So for some, maybe for you, for some people it's not, it comes natural. But if you throw those words out there and they're not requited, that can be very <laughs> awkward. In uh, our families, they should be heard often, right? Really, every day and multiple times. I love you. In fact, God has a lot to say about the family. And these verses I'm going to share with you, you know them very well. They're not new to you. I just want you to hear them to remind you what God says about love in a family. Paul tells us in Ephesians that wives are to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And he tells husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. These words are said to children. Obey your parents as you would the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may live a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. This is what Paul says to uh, widows in the church. Paul told the church to have a list. And on this list, write down the names of widows. And the church was responsible for taking care of those widows. Except for if they had children or grandchildren. When he says, support widows who were genuinely widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must learn to practice godliness toward their own family first and to repay their parents, for this pleases God. But if anyone does not provide for his own, that is, his own household, 
He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So from these verses, it's obvious that God wants a family to be a place where we say, I love you a lot, and where husband and wife are together, and where husband and wife care for their children, where children obey their parents, where uh, when parents get old, the Children, grandchildren take care of them. It's supposed to be a place where we are loved unconditionally, a place where we're cared for, a place where we are supported, a place where we can always come home. Paul says to remind us that God has always said, honor your father and mother, honor your parents. So again, this all makes sense. You've all heard it. It, it, And it makes sense when we hear it. So... If that's true, then why would Jesus say this? Hate your family. And yes, he did say that. Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Did Jesus really say that? He said, listen, hate your parents. Hate your wife. Hate your children. Hate your siblings. How would that go over on Valentine's Day? If you wrote in your card to your wife, I hate you. Luke 14, 26. That's what Jesus said. He said to hate your family. Uh, did Jesus really say this? There was a man who came to him and, and you know, Jesus was, uh, said, uh, well, one guy came to him and said, I want to follow you, Lord. And Jesus said, well, basically said, I have no place to stay. Another one said this, I want to bury my father before I follow you. He wanted to honor his father, honor his parents. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Doesn't sound like Jesus really wants this guy to honor his parents if Jesus doesn't even want him to go and bury his dad. And did Jesus really say this? Did Jesus say that he didn't come to bring peace but to divide families? We celebrated Christmas that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Yet Jesus said this, Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Put that on a Christmas card. Matthew 10, 34. I did not come to bring peace. And see how many of those sell. So it almost seems like these words of Jesus are the exact opposite that we would think he would say. You would think he would say, love your family. You would think he would say, honor your parents by honoring them in a proper burial. You would think he would say, I have come to bring peace to families. To reunite and connect. But he didn't say that. He said, hate your family. He said, don't bury your dead. He said, I've come to to divide families. So what did Jesus mean? How could he have said that? 
He also says this. this The person who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Let me try to help you out. Think about buying a car. And I know this is strange. We're just talking about Jesus and families. Why are we talking about cars? Okay, it'll make sense in a moment. Especially if you have ever bought a brand new car. If you have done that, think about that moment and that decision. With a brand new car, I mean, everything is perfect on it. It smells great. There's not a scratch on it. It's all shiny. When you sit in it, it sits well. When you test drive it, there's not a a rattle. There's no noises. It's all smooth. It accelerates. The salesperson's telling you how great you're going to look in it. You're thinking about yourself driving down the road and people looking and turning and you're thinking about the convertible and the wind in your hair and you're thinking about uh, how great it's going to look when you're driving to get the groceries and how great you're going to feel driving to work. And so you're thinking about all these things. And, And the salesperson is just laying it on you and telling you how great this car is and how great you'll be in it. And you just imagine how wonderful it will be. And then when you actually do buy it, there's even a lot of excitement as seen in these pictures. Jumping for joy, hugging your car. Now what's one of the questions always asked when you're looking for a car? How much does it cost? Right? But when you're thinking about the wind in your hair, you're not thinking about the cost. Now when you write the check, sign for the loan... You're thinking about the cost, but I've noticed there's never been a a salesperson who tells you all about these costs. You know, as soon as you drive it off the lot, it's going to be worth half as much as it was you paid for it, and you know there's a lot of interest on that car loan. You think it costs $15,000, really you're going to pay $20,000 by the time you've paid it off. Oh, and by the way, it's going to be about $150 for insurance each month, about $200 for gas each month. And also about maintenance, about $500 a year. And then your car is going to have dings and dents and it's going to smell. It's going to have uh, messes in it. And also you're going to have to buy new tires. And you may have an accident where it will really cost you a few thousand dollars to fix it. And if you drive too fast, there'll be a $200 speeding ticket and park it illegally in a $40 one. Now that's the true cost of owning this car. Don't you want to buy it now? I think the pictures will look more like this. (laughs) So what does it cost to have that new car? You see, I want you to imagine what it would be like to follow Jesus. Even the people in his day that would see him as he would come from town to town probably had an image in their mind about how great it would be. Especially the ones who were fed that one day. They imagined, wow, if I go with Jesus, I will always have food to eat. On days that Jesus did miracles, they probably thought, wow, everywhere I go, I'll get to see people healed and the blind to see and those who can't walk will be able to walk. It will be great to see that. When they saw disciples doing miracles, they thought, wow, if I follow Jesus... I will be doing miracles. And when they saw the disciples casting out demons, they said, I don't even have power to cast out demons. So following Jesus 
That's got to be the greatest thing in the world. And so Jesus, when people would come and want to follow him, he always told them, count the cost. Count the true cost of what it's going to cost you to follow me. All the verses I read to you all are in that same context. They're all in the context about following Jesus. And so Jesus is telling his hearers, he's telling us, if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you something. It it may cost you your possessions. Remember, there was a rich man who came to Jesus. Before that, this is the other guy that was telling Jesus he wanted to follow him. He said, teach, I'll follow wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds have the sky, have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He told this man, if you're going to follow me, you're not going to be staying in a nice hotel. You're not going to be staying in nice places. You're going to be sleeping on the floor. You're going to be sleeping in the home of someone who is nice enough to let us stay. It's not going to be easy. He said to the rich young man, if you want to be perfect, go sell your belongings and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when the young man heard that command, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Following Jesus may cost you your possessions, your money. But more than that, it may cost you your life. Talk about families. Listen to this. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will even rise up against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. In this context, Jesus is telling his disciples, if you follow me, you're going to be persecuted. And his point is this last sentence. If people hate Jesus, they're going to hate you. Why would people hate Jesus and love his followers? So Jesus tells us the cost, it may cost you your life. And it certainly will cost you this. It will certainly cost you your will. Jesus says in more than one place similar words, whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone finding his life will lose it, and anyone losing his life because of me will find it. When someone took their cross, when the Romans were crucifying them and carried it, it was symbolic of the fact that they were admitting that Rome had authority over them. They were submitting to the government. And they were carrying their cross. I've always found it very telling that Jesus did not carry his cross. Because he was not guilty. He didn't submit to the Romans. As he told Pilate, the only reason that he was there was because the Father was allowing it all to happen. So when Jesus tells us that we must carry our cross, that's what he's telling us. That we have to submit to him. So that our life is not lived based on what we want to do, but what God tells us to do. In fact, Jesus even talks about giving up our life, losing it. In the sense of losing control of it, because now God's in control of it. He says if you carry your cross, you lose control of your life, then you will gain it. Because then we'll be following Jesus in obedience and 
And we will follow him all the way to heaven. So it may cost you your possessions. It may cost you your life. But it certainly will cost you your will. And it may cost you your family. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says to hate your family. When he's talking about he's come to divide his family. And he's talking about how this guy should just follow Jesus and not bury his father. This is what Jesus is saying. That the primary relationship in our life must be Jesus. Nobody else. Yes, we are to obey all of those commands that we looked at earlier. To care for our family and to be obedient to our parents. To honor our parents. But parents, spouses, children, siblings, cousins, uncles, no one. And that relationship should be higher than our relationship with Jesus. And so in a sense, our love for God should be so much that it seems like hate toward our family. Or another way to look at it is Jesus is saying, the family that's around you, you must love me first. Love me more than them. Even that's kind of hard to understand, but it makes complete sense. When we're following God, our loyalty cannot be divided. We can't be loyal to God and to Satan. We can't be loyal to God and loyal to ourselves. That's why Jesus said we have to take up our cross. We can't be loyal in following God and then following a family member. We can't be loyal to God and be loyal to others if those others aren't following God. So Jesus makes it clear. Remember when he says these things, they're made, he says them so that we pay attention. They are shocking. They're exaggeration. They're hyperbole. So that you hear them and you say, what? Did you really say that, Jesus? He could have said it in a, maybe a less shocking way, but the truth of what he says is obvious. Our relationship with Jesus must be the first one in our life. And this is what he's also is saying. When we make Jesus first in our life, our family may not understand that. They may persecute us. They may reject us. Because they don't understand why we would follow God. Now we can think of obvious examples of this. Imagine someone in a family that is not Christian. And to make the example even more obvious, think of a family maybe that's devout Muslims. And someone in that family becomes a Christian. Do you think the family is going to embrace that or rejoice over that? The one who follows Christ most likely lose family. And wouldn't you advise someone Follow Christ regardless of what your family says. Follow Jesus regardless of what your family says or does to you. You would give that advice, wouldn't you? I said that's an obvious example. That's what Jesus is talking about. We would never think someone who said, you know what? I want to follow Jesus, but my family's Muslim and I love them so much that I'm just going to follow what they're doing so that there's no family problems or issues. We would think that unwise. Why would you put your family above God? 
Why would you give up following Jesus just to keep family harmony? We'd say, no, follow Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. That's an obvious example, but maybe it's not always so obvious. Sometimes people don't even come to church because a spouse doesn't want to come to church. Sometimes people won't serve God in another state or another country because it's too far away from family. Sometimes we allow parents or grandparents to tell us what to do with our children, even though we think doing something for them would make the relationship with Jesus better. You see, there can be more subtle ways where we give in to the pressure to keep peace with family, to put family above the Lord, rather than being obedient to Him. And Jesus is saying, if you are a follower of mine, it may cost you your family because my relationship must be the first in your life, not your spouse's, my relationship. And when you follow me, people in your family may not understand it. And that's why there may be division. That's what Jesus was talking about. He didn't come to this earth to smooth over families. He came to this earth to present himself as the Son of God, the Messiah, and for people to follow him. And so people will follow him. And when they do and they make that decision, others in their family will say, we're not doing that. We hate you for that. Family is divided. See, for Jesus, it was more important that you follow him and that you're on good terms with your family. When he was talking to the man who wanted to bury his father, uh, most believe that what the man was saying, I will follow Jesus once my father has died and once I do bury him, he was putting it off. He wasn't ready to follow him right now. And Jesus was telling him, no, now is when you follow me. Those other things, they'll take care of themselves. And so this is the challenge. As I told you last week, every time Jesus says something that's shocking, he says it because he's challenging us, but also to comfort us. This is the challenge for us who claim to be Christians and disciples of Christ, is that if that's true, then we must follow Jesus completely, and complete love, devotion, submission, and obedience? Do you hear those words? Again, usually where we struggle with this is where we want to live our life our way. and want to do things our way. We want our will to be first. We want to be on the throne of our life rather than putting God in his rightful place. But if we follow the Lord, it's submitting completely to him. Loving him more than anything else. And doing so is going to cost and the cost may be great. But why do people buy a car if the cost is so high? Because they know they've counted the cost and they know the rewards of buying it. And even with all the other things that happen with it, it's worth it. So the same is true with following Jesus. The cost will be great. Jesus didn't tell people, don't follow me. He said to follow me, but before you follow me, make sure you know what it's going to cost. But he says, those who count the cost and follow me, they will find that it is worth it. Because Jesus promises a huge blessing to all who follow. Listen to what he said to 
his disciples, everyone who has left houses, that's possessions. Notice family, brothers or sisters, father or mother, children. So those who have lost fields or houses, possessions, those who have lost family, because of my name, will receive 100 times more. And more importantly, will inherit eternal life. See, Jesus says, count the cost, but it's worth it. The persecution, the division in family, the loss of your will, the loss of your possessions, it's all worth it to follow me. Because in Jesus we have life lived to the full, and in Jesus we have eternal life. In Jesus we have the promise of blessing. Jesus said this also in Matthew 11, you are blessed when they insult and persecute you. And falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice. Now how can you be glad and rejoice when people are persecuting you? He tells us. Because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The cost is great, but the reward is far greater than the cost. And so if you're a person who makes a list of pros and cons, and you were making a list of pros and cons of following Jesus, the cons list would be long. But the pros would be far longer. And that's Jesus' point. That's why he says those shocking words. And so the challenge and the comfort comes to us this morning. And let's respond to that as we pray and get ready to sing. Jesus, we know that the cost of following you is great. But Jesus, this morning I pray that we wouldn't be put off by the cost or feel that your standards are too high. Rather, Lord, I pray that we would see the blessing, the joy, the reward, the eternity with you that comes from following you. I pray for those this morning who may be suffering the cost. Maybe someone's here whose family has rejected them or persecuted them because of their faith in you, Jesus. I pray that you would give them strength, but also I do pray that you would heal that family. I pray, Lord, for those today, and there are many Christians who do, who want to Follow you, Lord, but not at full strength. They want to follow you part-time. They want to follow you when it's easy. They want to follow you when there's glory involved. And Lord, I even find myself that way sometimes. So for us, Lord, I pray that we would never be following you half-heartedly, but follow you completely. And Lord, I pray that you would comfort all of us with your words of promise, of reward. Lord, I pray that we would respond now with really the only appropriate response this morning, and that is to follow you. And I pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.